Okay, Numbers chapter 11 this evening. We didn't quite get out of the 11th chapter together last time. As we come to this point historically with the children of Israel, they have now began their journey uh, in the wilderness uh, from Sinai, making their way to the land of of Canaan, and as we saw in the 11th chapter last week, only three days after they began that journey, uh, very quickly afterwards, it says that the people began to complain, uh, and it displeased the Lord, and his anger was aroused, and right away we saw the very first graveyard in the wilderness uh, was basically a graveyard as the result of complaining, the sin of complaining uh, in the midst of God's people in the congregation. The fire of the Lord, it said, burned among them and consumed those who were there on the outskirts of the camp, which seemed to be the ones who were uh, guilty of this complaining and instigating it. And of course, as we said, complaining is contagious, uh, like a lot of, that's the only thing, but like a lot of sinful behaviors and habits and attitudes it certainly is amazing how those things are 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 contagious and they spread and that complaining began to permeate uh, the rest of the camp and we looked at some of those things together how that affected what was taking place now uh, because last time we sort of left off there in the 11th chapter not finishing and i want to just for sake of refreshing your memory remind you particularly then what complaint then arose even after the generic complaining that was happening that caused the fire of the Lord to uh, consume and really judge some of those on the outskirts of the camp, we're told there back in verse 4, because this is where we're going to be looking at this evening in the remainder of chapter 11, that there was a mixed multitude who were among them, and it said, who yielded to intense Craving. So take notice that this is the, the issue at hand. This mixed multitude yielded to intense craving that is to a a fleshly or carnal craving the the cravings of the natural man of the uh, sinful nature the desires and the drives within them and again we talked about that last time this mixed multitude basically is a reference in the scripture to those likely who were not Jewish by descent potentially these were mixed marriages maybe Jews and Egyptians these could have been a reference to those who when they left Egypt some of the Egyptians themselves who just chose to sort of tag along with the people of God as they were delivered out of Egypt from Pharaoh's bondage who decided hey it looks like a, a great group to go and spend time with and we're kind of done with things here in Egypt we don't like the way the system of Egypt and the, the world system operates here so we're going to just we're going to journey with these people people and uh, and follow along with them but yet they were a mixed multitude in the sense that uh, uh, they had mixed desires uh, they had left Egypt but Egypt had not left them uh, and they had mixed desires in that they still had desires for the ways of Egypt and the things of Egypt even though they were among the people of God and the things of God And as I said last time, these kind of individuals will always be present in every congregation of God's people, not just the nation of Israel. Uh, Honestly, these type of people will be intermingled and interdispersed among the church and among the congregation uh, locally of the saints. There will always be some who are sort of the mixed multitude where they're among the people of God, but uh, they're really still carnal in nature. Uh, They still love the ways of the world. They don't mind hanging out with God's people they don't mind maybe being in a church service or attending church functions or listening to a bible study but yet their desires and their cravings are still for the things of the world and they still want to live in the world but yet be among god's people and the downside of that is that sometimes their intense craving for carnal and worldly things uh, can become a problem then that sort of mixes up the people of god who are in their midst so this mixed multitude becomes the group that's guilty of this intense craving and they began to utter this next complaint we see it there in verse 4 it says they began to weep again saying who will give us meat to eat we remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic but now our whole being is dried up and there is nothing at all except this manna 
before our eyes. So uh, this complaint arises as the reflecting back on the old way of life in Egypt, looking back to how things were. And again, as we said in the Bible, Egypt is always a type of the world. So this is a picture of kind of you know looking back to the old life, the life that was lived in the world before God's deliverance brought us out of that old system. And again, there no mention here of the fact that wow, we had leak, uh, you know uh, leeks and, and garlic and onions and all these things there but uh, the thing that they forget is yes but you ate those things as a slave and you might have enjoyed the fish dinner but you ate the fish dinner with shackles on and a taskmaster who controlled your life and abused your liberty and took advantage of you and and forced you and subjected you to ways of life that were utterly miserable so yes you might have had a full belly but you had a miserable life and a miserable existence as you were in bondage to those things. And of course, they, they don't reflect upon any of those things. They just begin to complain because they're craving and desiring certain things. And rather than being content with the manna that God was providing for them, which as we see in the scripture was in some way, the Bible calls it actually angel's food, was some miraculous provision God would make for them daily that had a nutritional value to it that was able to sustain them in the wilderness. It fed them. Uh, it kept them healthy, but it wasn't something, it seems, that was stimulating enough and they were wanting something more, uh, in a sense, you know, appealing to their flesh. So they say, oh, we forget or remember when we had this and all we have now is just this plain, bland manna. It's manna, 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 manna in the morning, manna in the evening, manna at supper time. And they're just sick and tired of, of, of when are we going to get something more exciting? We need something more stimulating. The world has stimulating stuff and, and there's kind of this wrong concept of thinking things were actually better. So they begin to crave after meat. Now, in and of itself, let me just say this. I don't think there's anything sinful about desiring meat. It's not necessarily that they were wrong in that. But the problem was, was this intense craving after the things of the flesh and this despising of the care of God over their lives, of somehow what God had done for them was not sufficient, that they were entitled to more. They were entitled to some prime rib and some filet mignon. I mean, what, this treatment of God to, to only allow them to, to eat manna, I mean, certainly they're entitled to a little more than that. And as I said last time, this is part of the root issue with at times complaining and, and criticism because we're actually complaining about the way that God takes care of us. And we're saying somehow, God, what you do for me, it isn't sufficient enough. I deserve better. I deserve more. And, and as this complaining began to arise, who's going to give us meat? When are we going to get some meat to eat? Of course, this began to just spread among the whole camp where verse 10, everyone began to weep. It says everyone at the door of his tent and it says the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. As we saw last time, God's anger is aroused by complaining and by criticism towards him and the ways in which he is taking care of our lives in an ungrateful way when we begin to complain like that. And Moses then as their leader began to become beside himself. He's trying to hand in his resignation. We saw last time saying, Lord, what's up with this? I didn't conceive these people. I didn't beget these people. They're your people. Remember, I was just taking care of my father-in-law's sheep there on the backside of the desert. I was content. I had a wife. I had a little job. I was in, and this whole idea of burning bush, go see Pharaoh, take it. This was your idea. I didn't sign up for this. So he's, he's trying to sort of hand in his resignation papers because he's just sort of flustered with the experiences of his role of leadership, which was a great burden upon him. And then you know, quite a few people complaining and grumbling and, and having to deal with those kind of things. He's sort of wearied by all that. So he's praying here in these verses we saw last time, trying to hand in his resignation. And, and thankfully, you know, what is interesting is Moses says two things. He says, verse 13, where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep over me saying, give us meat to eat. So again, Moses says, Lord, first of all, where am I going to get meat to take care of these people? I, I can't provide what they're asking for. And again, forgetting that it was God's responsibility to supply what the people he was caring for needed, thinking that just because he led them that somehow his responsibility was greater than what it was. He, he failed to realize that. And he just, Lord, where, where am I going to get meat to? 
And he says, verse 14, which was a, an honest uh, answer as well. And he says, and I am not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. And then remember, he said, if you treat me like this, if this is how it's going to be, Lord, uh, just, just take my life here and now. Just end my life. It'd be better to die than to have to deal with these continuous circumstances as they arise. Now, here's the thing that's beautiful. And I didn't say this last time and I want to bring us to your attention. It is so wonderful, isn't it, that God filters our prayers? Because Moses makes these statements and God listens to the part of the prayer that he chooses to listen to and he answers part of the prayer. And another whole part of the prayer, God just says, eh, how about we just throw that out? And he doesn't answer that. And I'll tell you, I am really thankful that God is a father in the truest sense, that he knows what's best for us. So he does honor and give to us and supply graciously and mercifully at times our requests, our desires. He takes care of our needs. But then there are other times that as a father, a loving and all-wise father who sees the bigger picture and understands our human weakness, Psalm 103 says he remembers our frame, that we are dust. That as a father pities his children, so the Lord has pity and compassion upon us like an earthly father. And at times he just lets us talk and he says, go ahead, yeah, yeah, go ahead, just get that out of your system. And, and then he kind of just filters the prayer and he says, okay, now that, there's no way we're going to do that because that's not what I intend and that's not what, but, but this is legitimate. And so I'll address this. And, and so God here, he, he filters Moses' prayer and he does address two of the things that Moses brings up. Thankfully, it's not the thing to take his life. So <laughs> that's the part you want God to filter. The part that we pray sometimes in exasperation and foolishness when we're just overwhelmed or discouraged or disheartened by what's going on in our lives sometimes. So the two things Moses addressed is, Lord, I can't bear all these people alone. That was a legitimate concern. He needed help. Earlier, God gave to him a group of individuals to help manage the civil responsibilities. And then here, the solution God gives to that, and we looked at the verses from this chapter last time together, God gives him 70 individuals to help manage the spiritual responsibilities. He says, select from among you 70 men whom you know, men of good reputation that have been serving with you, and the same spirit that's anointing and upon you, Moses, for service. I'm going to put the same spiritual anointing upon them and they'll assist you. They'll be like assistants on your staff there, if you would. They'll be those who share in the load of responsibility to help minister to the people spiritually. So God addresses that legitimately and we saw how he did that in the verses we looked at last week. But the other thing Moses brought up was the legitimate complaint of people were saying, we want meat. We're not satisfied with this manna. We want, we deserve meat and we think that we're entitled to that. And Moses said, Lord, where, where am I going to get meat to feed all these people? Well, God's going to answer that as we begin now. Look up in verse 18. Let's pick up where we left off last time. God says, then you shall say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Now, wow, that's a pretty brazen indictment. It was well with us in Egypt? Do you remember what their life was like in Egypt? It was miserable. They cried out to the Lord for deliverance. There were weights upon them. They were slaves and in bondage and were, were under the cruel hand of those who took a, you know, advantage of them and oppressed their lives. And they have the audacity to say, it was really well in Egypt. I mean, how crazy is it for any one of us here tonight as we think of our old life of what it was like in the world to come to a place where we'd actually say, man, it was really good when I wasn't saved. That's called spiritual lunacy. If you can look back at your old life before you're a Christian and say, boy, it was much better when I was living in the world, when Satan ruled over my life and just drove me to do all kinds of things. And, and, and here they say, who will give us me? It was well for us in Egypt. So the Lord is saying to them here, okay, you, you really want meat that bad? You really need meat that bad? You, you're yielding to that craving? You're so entitled to it, you have to have it? 
Well, look what God says. Verse 18, it says, Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat it. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month until meat comes out of your nostrils. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. Until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes, look at it, loathsome to you. Because you have despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever come up out of Egypt? So here God says to them, okay, you, you want meat? You're complaining and griping and saying that you deserve it. You're entitled to it. It was better in Egypt. Why aren't we getting what we need? And, and so God says to them here, Okay, if you desire meat that much, God says, I will give you your way. You don't want my way. You don't want my plan, my provision, and the way that I'm operating things. Then God says, I'll tell you what, I'll actually give you your way. And God says, in fact, I'm going to give you your way so much that not only will you have your fill of it, it will so overflow you. He says, it's actually going to come out of your nostrils and it's going to make you nauseous and sick. By the time you're done with it, because I'm going to supply to you exactly what you want. Now, Psalm 106, 13 through 15 says this. Listen to it. It's interesting commentary on the section. It says, they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness to their soul. God gave them their request, but he sent leanness to their soul. Look, this chapter, as we look at it, teaches us an important lesson or two about God. And that is this, is you and I can, even as the children of Israel here, it is possible for a person to actually beg and push and badger God so much to the point where we plead for our way and push for our way and beg for our way and demand our way where sometimes God will actually say, okay, okay, if that's what you want and you want it that bad and you're going to pursue it that hard and you're going to beg for it that much, then I'll tell you what, how about you try that out for a while? And where God will look at our lives where we say in a sense, not your will, but my will be done. And sometimes we can be so persistent and, and badger and push so hard for wanting our way in a situation, whether it's some relationship or whether it's some lust and craving of our flesh to have some sinful indulgence or, or whatever that may be. Look, case in mind here, keep in mind here, this is just people wanting meat. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong about meat. But, but this, the, the bottom line is that this wasn't a part of God's plan for them. And they were so persistent and pushy in a sense with, with accusing God and chasing after a way that God gives them what they wanted. But look, God says, I'm going to give you what you want. But you're going to find out that you're actually not going to enjoy it. In fact, God says to them, I'm going to give you what you want in such a way that not only are you not going to enjoy it, it's going to yield consequences that are very unpleasant and painful in your life. And see, I think this is a great reminder for us that when as people we reject God's purposes or plans or when someone is craving their own way or their own desire, sometimes the lesson is, is that we find that the alternative to God's will, the alternative to God's best and plan is actually not satisfying, but it's quite nauseating. And a lot of times it becomes something that is very undesirable and that is actually more destructive and damaging and displeasing than it is good. So much wiser for us to just learn the lesson, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Again, what does the psalmist say? No good thing will he withhold from us. No good thing, which means sometimes if God's withholding something from me, I have to trust that as a loving, gracious, good father, maybe God says, it's just not good for you. I may not even know why it's not good for me, but God knows what's good for us. God knows what's not good for us. And for us to push and to plead and to badger and to try and chase after our way so much, it is possible 
And this is one of a few passages that indicate in the Bible that sometimes God says, okay, I'll give you your way then. There you go. You can have your way. And the unpleasant thing is what we experience often when we push outside of God's plan and chase after our craving that we're yielding to or some strong desire or something we really want. So important to remember this here. God says, I'm not going to give you meat uh, just for a day. God says, you're going to have it for a month so much until it comes out of your nostrils and it will become loathsome to you because you despise the Lord in what you have done. And Moses said, now as Moses hears this and he informs the people, he now enters into some dialogue with God because he's thinking, okay, Lord, awful nice that you want to give him meat. That's awful gracious. I understand you're trying to teach him a lesson, but that still doesn't solve my problem. So Moses says from a leadership perspective, okay, two and a half million people meet for a month. That's a lot of beef. That's a lot of meat. So he now, verse 21, turns to the Lord, probably in prayer, after having informed the people of what God's word was for them. And he says, the people who I am among, Lord, just in case you forgot to check your census records, Lord, did you remember that there are 600,000 men on foot? There are 600,000 just footmen men who are able to fight in battles. Now add to that women and children. God, remember that whole census thing we did a few chapters ago? We're talking upwards to over potentially 2 million people. And, and, and Lord, you have said, I'll give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. Again, he starts to think, shall flocks and herds be slaughtered? For them, or are we supposed to just you know, slaughter all of our animals that we have traveling with us here and, and dispose of what's our livelihood as, as a people who are tending flocks and herds? Uh, he says, Lord, uh, to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered for them to provide enough for them? In other words, Lord, you, you're saying that you're going to provide meat for these people for an entire month and you just told me that you're going to fulfill something and I have absolutely no idea how you're going to provide what needs to be provided. So Lord, I've said in faith that this is what you're going to do, but how in the world are you going to do that? And he begins to struggle in his mind because logically and rationally, he's thinking, how in the world is God going to set a table of meat for a month straight for all these people in the middle of a wilderness. How is this possibly going to happen? It's not realistic. Lord, if we got all the fish of the sea or we slaughtered all of our flocks and herds, that still wouldn't be enough to provide for all these people. And so Moses is now wrestling with the provision of the Lord. Now, he's much like you and I. His problem is, is for a moment, he has a, a slip in the gears of his own memory banks to forget the fact that this is the miracle working God who's been doing all these miracles since that burning bush there on the backside of the desert when God first sent him to go see Pharaoh, who sent him to Pharaoh and caused his you know, staff to turn into a snake before Pharaoh and then all the plagues miraculously there in front of Pharaoh and then the parting of the Red Sea and the water coming from the rock and the manna falling every day for them in the wilderness. And, and, and here Moses is forgetting the reality that, that did you forget that it was a miracle working God who just said that he would do this? But like you and I, he has a lapse in, in, in spiritual memory. He forgets God's, and he's just thinking, Lord, I don't see how this is going to happen. I, I just can't understand how this could come to pass. And the Lord said to Moses, has the Lord's arm been shortened? In other words, uh, you know, has, has my arm become handicapped all of a sudden? My strong arm that did all these other miracles has somehow my arm now sort of shriveled? Has it, has it somehow become handicapped where it's not able to provide and perform what it has in times past has the lord's arm been shortened he says now you shall see whether what i say will happen to you or not moses you just watch just stand back and watch and i'm going to show you how i can do this in the same way i've done everything else necessary before miraculously to provide and to perform what i promise and he just reminds Moses that he hadn't changed. And you know what? It's a good reminder for us to realize that we serve a God, the Bible says in Malachi, who changes not. 
And the same God who parted the Red Sea is the same God that's alive today when you and I are facing our situation where we're saying, Lord, uh, there's mountains on both sides of me. Uh, there's an army breathing down my neck and there's a body of water in front of me. And, and, and Lord, I, I need you to make a way here. And the same God who made a way, not just made a way, but made a way where there had never been a way before. That same God hasn't changed. He can still make a way. The same God who brings water from a rock, that same God is alive today. The same miracle working God hasn't changed. You know, this is much like what Jesus' disciples experienced in his day. Remember when he was uh, ministering to the multitudes there? and had been ministering to a few thousand people and they said, Jesus, the hour is late. Matthew chapter 14 records it in the other gospels too. We call it the feeding of the 5,000 and they said, the hour is late. This is a remote country and the people, they're gonna need food. We need to send them home. And then Jesus throws the zinger at him. Remember, he says, how about you give them something to eat? And, and same, what do you mean us give them something to eat? They do the thing we would do. Okay, well, let's at least do our best and check our resources. So they check around. Some little boy says, I'll donate my lunch. What do you got? I got five loaves and two fish. My mommy packed it for me when I was chasing the Jesus crowd today. He said, here, come here, Junior. You need to take something here. She packs something. I'll donate my lunch. This is all we got, Lord. He says, okay, bring it here to me. And then what does Jesus do? When they put what little they have into the Lord's hands... He takes it and he breaks it and he blesses and he multiplies it and it's sufficient to supply exactly what they needed to feed those people. And, and the Lord performed exactly what he promised. And he's able to do that in the same way in our lives. Look, you may be facing something this evening. You may be in a situation and, and the Lord has given you encouragement through his word or you know what his word says. My God shall supply all of your need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus or he said he's going to do something in your life or work in such a way. Uh, and, and now you're saying, but you know, Lord, how in the world is that going to happen? I just can't see any logical, rational way that that can come to pass. And perhaps the Lord would remind you of your concern of how he's going to provide or perform what he is able to do to address a situation. He would say, look, has, has my arm become handicapped? Has my arm somehow atrophied? It can't do what it once did? And, and just reminding us again to rely upon who he is, what he's done to remember your spiritual history and to realize that that same God was and is and is to come and he never changes. And so here Moses is told, Moses, you just watch and you're going to see whether what I say, verse 23, will happen to you or not. Now, look with me, if you would, over to verse 31. We looked at verse 24 to 30 last time together. This picks up this aspect of the solution of how God would provide the meat. Verse 31. Now, a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp. About a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, about two cubits above the surface of the ground. Remember, a cubit's about 18 inches. So this is about saying about 36 inches off the ground, about three feet up is where all these quail were. And the people stayed up, notice, all that day, all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail, and he who gathered least gathered 10 homers. Now, a, a homer, some say, is around six bushels. So that would be a reference to Again, if you picture like a bushel basket times 10, that would be 60 bushels. That's a lot of bird. Others say that a homer measures around 86 gallons. So another way of looking at that, that would be 860 gallons. That was the least, it says, that anyone gathered that day. Notice, and they, verse 32, spread them out for themselves all around the camp. Now, what's the purpose of that? Because they realized they couldn't eat all that meat in one day, so they're spreading them out to do what in that culture? So that the sun could dry out the meat. It was basically making quail jerky, if you would, so that it would be preserved and it could last. And so that they could keep it for further use in their lives. So uh, the Lord here orchestrates by his uh, divine power 
where he sort of, if you would, diverts the migration pattern of these quails that were coming through the area right where the children of Israel were at this time. Now, now we know uh, that it was typical for these kind of birds, it is common, there's a migration pattern that they fly on between the area of Africa and Europe, depending upon what time of the year it is. So, and they kind of would, in a sense, now be pushed over by the Mediterranean Sea area. How? It says, verse 31, that a wind went out from the Lord. Uh, basically, what you know, all God's got to do, he created the heavens and the earth. He controls every creature. So God gave these birds the capacity to fly. He sees their migration patterns. So God just maybe gives one puff of his strong breath he sends forth a wind if you would and he diverts the migration pattern of these birds and maybe he wins them if you would tires them out so they now begin to fly at a very low level it says that they are flying all around about two cubits above the surface of the ground so they're about three foot height so basically they're in perfect zone if you would to bat these things down to to knock them down uh they're kind of like flying right in the strike zone there and that makes total sense that the people could then just bat them down to take them in you do notice it says there in verse 32 that each person got 10 homers oh come on sorry you gotta you gotta find one that you could slip in there somewhere like that so so they they gather all these quail enough to sustain them for a long period of time and notice again verse 32 how strong their craving is remember it says they were yielding to craving this goes to show you how driven they were by their fleshly lusts because look at verse 32 they stayed up all that day all night and all the next day so for for two full days at least they never slept they were indulging so strong was the desire the fleshly craving that it was driving them so strong that for two days they were just gorging and glutting themselves gathering this meat and taking in their fleshly craving and man, what an interesting illustration if you think of how we at times as human beings too can be yielded to our fleshly cravings and how when someone has a strong desire for the flesh and the Lord lets them have what they want the extent that people will go to greedily and selfishly just glut themselves and to gorge themselves to the place where remember what he said you're going to eat so much meat you're going to vomit it out of your nostrils because they were gorging themselves with such passion and strong desire and and why are they doing this again why do they spend two days after god said that he'd provide them enough for a month because the people in unbelief are thinking hey we better get the quail while the quail's available because we can't trust god will ever do this for us again well they don't trust god we said he'll provide it for a month but the quail's available now so for two days instead of trusting the lord and just gathering and resting they're indulging, 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 indulging. They think, hey, we got to get why it's available. And the greed just consumes them rather than trusting that God will sustain them and do what he said for them. And, you know, this is a mistake all of us can make sometimes is that sometimes rather than trusting the Lord, we can be some, come so consumed with greed and so compelled to think we have to do things, take care of things, that, that we can be driven to go so overboard listen nothing wrong with hard work nothing wrong with making sure we got something to eat but sometimes we can be so driven that we push 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 thinking well i have got to take advantage and consume everything possible now because if i don't what if the quail don't come tomorrow listen god said he'd provide and there's a balance there and here we don't want to make the same mistake that they made where they're so consumed with yielding to their craving. Well, look what happens, verse 33. But while the meat was still in their teeth. So the picture here is like you picture when you, you, know, you bite into a, a nice chicken leg or something. As soon as you rip that meat off, while the meat was still in their teeth, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people because of their behavior. Look, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So he called the name of that place Kibroth Hatava because there were buried there the people, notice, who had yielded to craving. Th that term there, Kibroth Hatava, is a term that means graves 
of lust or graves of craving. And there the Lord judges the people because of their behavior, because of their strong, greedy craving to pursue after that. So again, here, they partake of, of what they lusted after, but the consequences that came along with it, it destroyed their lives. The very thing they lusted and craved after, it became the very thing that destroyed them. Psalm 78 says this regarding this. It says, He caused an east wind to blow in the heavens. His power, he brought the south wind. He rained meat on them like the dust, feathered fowl like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. So they ate and were well filled, for he gave them their own desire. Boy, that's always a bad thing when God gives us our own desire. Better to let him write his will and his desires on the fleshly tablet of our hearts, not pursue our desires. They were not deprived, it says, of their craving, but while the food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choicest men of Israel. So this incredible tragedy here, notice already the second graveyard in the wilderness. The first graveyard due to the sin of complaining. The second graveyard in the wilderness due to the sin of greed and lust and craving after sinful, selfish, fleshly desires. They yielded to craving. Now, again, this just reminds me of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 where he says there, Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, there are certain aspects of our natural desires in and of themselves that are not wrong. But when we are consumed by our fleshly desires and we live a life according to the flesh, after the flesh, the Bible says that is a pathway towards death. When we allow the flesh to consume us and control us, instead by the Spirit, we should put to death the cravings and the yieldings of the flesh so that we can walk in obedience and pleasure to the Lord. Verse 35, from Kibroth Hadavah, the people then moved to Hazaroth and camped at Hazaroth. And you would think, okay, boy, this complaining thing, we really need to reel that in. Need to get that under control. The complaining, the rebellion, the resistance. But look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And guess what? Uh-oh, the Lord heard it. <laughs> you ever notice how God hears everything? We just forget that. The Lord again, as he heard the complaining in chapter 11, he now hears this, which really becomes something to a, a, a graver degree, now there's dissension among the ranks. Now there's a, a spirit of rebellion that's beginning to rise up within the people and it's starting among those who are in places of leadership. It, it's starting among people who should be examples, those who should be representing God well. Miriam and Aaron now begin to rebel and to criticize Moses regarding an issue in his personal life. Again, remember who Miriam and Aaron were. Miriam was Moses' older sister. She was the one who put him in the basket for her mother and sent him down the, the waterway there towards Pharaoh's daughter and then arranged so that his mother could nurse uh, Moses as a young child to spare and to save him. Aaron, we've seen him all along. He's the older brother of Moses who God blessed with the privilege of being the high priest it's not like he doesn't get to do anything either Miriam the Bible says is a prophetess uh, from Exodus chapter 15 so both of these individuals they have ministries they have ways of serving the Lord but they now begin to struggle the root issue clearly verse 2 shows us is an issue of envy and jealousy but how does it manifest itself it manifests itself in personal criticism towards Moses' character. It says, verse 1, they began to speak against Moses because of a marriage to an Ethiopian or a Cushite woman. Now, very likely that Moses' first wife, Zipporah, way back from the book of Exodus, has died. It's the wilderness, harsh climate, so he takes to himself another wife. He takes this Ethiopian woman now who he chooses, which at this point, 
according to the law, there's no prohibition against him marrying an Ethiopian woman. When they get into the land, God will then tell them not to marry the people of the land of Canaan. But at this point, there's no prohibition. He can marry whoever he wants. So he marries someone. He makes a, a decision which he has liberty about in his own personal life. He has the freedom to, to marry who he chooses. But again, maybe they feel threatened by this new wife. You know, the, Maybe she doesn't connect with the family the way that Zipporah did. So they find that as, as a source of criticism and they now begin to speak against Moses and this marriage. They begin to criticize his personal life and personal decisions. But verse 2 shows, again, notice, typically when people are struggling and rebelling, it usually the, the, the honest issue isn't really what comes out on the surface at first. It's other things they begin to attack. But the root issue is verse 2. They say, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? So the issue is there's a sense of envy in their heart. They're rebelling against the authority in which he operated in as sort of the shepherd leader or supreme leader that God had ordained over the congregation of the people of Israel. And, and, and they become jealous. Well, how come only Moses gets to function in those ways? Now, keep in mind, as I said, Miriam was a prophetess. God used her to prophesy. Aaron was the high priest. It's not like they didn't get to do things. But something arises in their heart of jealousy, some self-seeking thing. And again, keep in mind in this passage, the rebellion here against someone in authority who was Moses, this wasn't an issue where Moses was you know, doing something where he's abusing his authority or he's doing something unbiblical or unethical. And, it, and it's a sad and difficult thing when sometimes leaders abuse their authority to do something unethical or unbiblical. And then people who are part of a congregation have to help navigate and deal with something like that. that that's a totally separate issue. That's not what's taking place here. This is just two individuals who are kind of a little self-seeking. They're a little jealous. They have self-interest. And they're not understanding why they're not getting to do what he does. So something within their heart perverse begins to arise. And, and, and something of jealousy, again, you can almost sense likely from this chapter that Miriam was the instigator because verse 1, that word spoke against is in the feminine and in the singular, not plural. And when the judgment of God comes for this, it's Miriam who's judged and not Aaron. Now, that would make sense because when you see how it played out, it's very likely that she was the instigator saying these things. And Aaron seems to be, if you follow him through the scripture, he seems to be a rather weak-willed man. He seems to be someone that instead of leading the way he should lead, he tends to just follow the suggestions and the pressures of other people as a leader, which isn't a very good leader. Remember the whole golden calf thing? He was supposed to be leading, and what did he do? He, he cowered to the pressures of the people, and he caused a whole big problem. So Miriam probably starts this. I mean, who does he think he is? If it weren't for me, he wouldn't even have survived that little trip down the Nile in his basket. And he's Mr. Leader, he's Mr. Prophet. I launched him into his life. And, his, and, and so she begins to struggle, you know, this uh, jealousy there, this envy as an older sister. So she begins to complain against Moses and, and question his authority. Verse 3 says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. So the Holy Spirit tells us something about Moses' nature and character. And let me say this. I think it's probably one of the reasons that God used him. Because I think one of the primary characteristics for our lives to be usable for God isn't talent, it's not charisma, it's humility. It's humility so that God can entrust, entrust authority and, and usefulness in a way where a person doesn't begin to misconstrue it because a lack of humility, many times, the Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives his grace to the humble. So we're told something about Moses here as a leader, and I think this is what marks and prepares someone for a place of leadership, a, a role of authority that they handle it properly in a good stewardship. Moses says the Holy Spirit tells us of his life was very humble more than all men on the face of the earth at that time. And suddenly, as this attack is going against him now, rebelling against his authority, suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. So all of a sudden, 
this is going on and the Lord now speaks into the situation. Again, Moses doesn't defend himself, but God's going to defend Moses because Moses is God's servant. So God says, hey, you three, out to the woodshed, over to the tabernacle. Like a father, you know, he just, here's this little squabble going on. He, Moses, Aaron, <laughs> Miriam, over to the tabernacle. So they came out and the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle. And then he called out, the idea is, Aaron and Miriam. You almost picture here like something like the Wizard of Oz, you know, just speaking out. Moses, you stay there. Mary, Miriam and Aaron, get over here. And he calls them out now forward and they both went forward and he said, hear now my words. Is there a prophet among you? I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision and I speak to him in a dream. Not so with Moses, my servant, my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord and God says, why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So look what God does. He, he, he calls them out and chides them for their rebellion against Moses' authority. Why? Not because Moses is special, but because that was rebellion against God's authority because God ordained Moses. It was God's authority upon Moses' life. God called him. God raised him up. God gave him that authority. And again, it wasn't as if there was something unethical, unbiblical, unlawful that he was doing. This was just an issue at heart of self-interest that caused them to challenge the authority that God had put there among the people. And God did not take too lightly to that. Look, see what God says there. He calls them out. Verse 6, he says, Hear now my words. In other words, God had been listening to all their words. God had been listening to all the little things they were saying, criticizing and complaining and challenging. And God says, how about you zip it now and listen to what I have to say? And God says, hear now my words. And God says, is there a prophet among you? Well, Miriam was a prophetess. There were prophets among them. And God says, well, with prophets, I make myself known in visions and dreams. That was a way of communicating, but it wasn't a clear, direct way of communicating. Visions and dreams had to be interpreted. It needed more assistance from God. But he says, not so with, notice, my servant Moses. Something else we see about Moses is he was a servant. He was humble and he was a servant. God calls him my servant. He is, thirdly, notice, faithful. Great lessons here for spiritual leadership. Humility, servanthood, faithfulness. Moses, my servant, he is faithful in all my house. He's faithful to me, God says, despite what you want to say about him. God says he's faithful to what I ask him to do. And he's accountable to me as my servant. And he says, and I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. In other words, God says, again, not speaking face to face literally. We know that from other texts where the Bible says a God and you know, man can't see God face to face. is an anthropomorphism, which basically speaks of God saying, I speak to Moses openly, directly. I speak to him in a special way, clearly, because he's my servant, my anointed vessel in this sense. So God says, I speak directly through clear communication, like one friend to another. So he says he has this privileged place where in that role I've put him in, where I speak to him with that special, open, direct communication. And that's why God says, verse 8, why then were you not afraid? Why didn't you respect the authority of God, my authority that was upon his life? Again, verse 9, look at it. So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous. And we know what that is, as white as snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam and there she was, a leper. So God strikes her with a severe judgment for this rebellious spirit, if you would. So Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us. Notice he confesses, in which we have done foolishly, in which we have sinned. So he realized this challenging of the authority of God. He says, this was foolish and it was sinful. 
It was wrong. We shouldn't have done this and spoke in such ways. Please do not let her be as one dead whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. The idea is like a stillborn child. So this must have been incredibly grotesque, the leprosy she was immediately struck with. Look at verse 13. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, finish her. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, that's what I would say because I'm not as godly as Moses. <laughs> Moses cried out to the Lord, please heal her, O God, I pray. And the Lord said to Moses, her father had spit in her face. Would she not be shamed seven days? Again, that was a disgraceful thing to be spit upon in that culture. So he says what she has done is shameful. And even if a father had done that to shame his daughter because she had shamed the family and caused disgrace, let her be shut out of the camp for seven days. Afterwards, she may be received again. So Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days and the people did not journey until Miriam was brought in again. So God graciously heals Miriam. But still her shame had consequences and those consequences didn't just affect her. Notice the consequences affected the whole congregation. The whole congregation was stopped and progress was halted while they had to wait for her to recover from the issue that she caused and the consequences of her own rebellion. But I want to point this out to you as we, as we close out this evening. Notice again the heart of Moses. This leprosy strikes her. Aaron turns and says, Oh, Moses, we've done foolishly. We've sinned. And look at the heart of Moses. Moses prays, Please, Heal her, O oh God. You want to talk about mercy? You want to talk about grace? A heart of patience? A magnanimous heart? Where does a heart like that come from? Well, I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from someone when the spirit, not of a great man, but the spirit of God is upon a person that makes them behave and respond like that. Because ultimately, what happens when Jesus, God in the flesh, is hanging upon the cross and people have spit on him and abused him and mistreated him and been rude and unkind to him? And, and, and Jesus says what as he's dying? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Man, how awesome to realize that Jesus, Hebrews 3 says, is greater than Moses. And at times in our life, look, just like Miriam, just like Aaron, we can be some pretty rebellious, cantankerous people. And we can rebel, not so much against Moses, but against one greater than Moses. We can rebel against Jesus. But to realize Jesus is so compassionate, he's so merciful, even to our rebellious spirit. And you know what he's looking for? Just a repentant heart. Lord, forgive me. I've done foolishly. I've sinned in my rebellious heart. Lord, have mercy upon me. And how wonderful that he says, Father, forgive them, heal them, restore them. And God does that in our lives. Father, we.